pray for us, and then we'll uh, jump into the scriptures together. Father, thank you uh, that we can come together as a, a church family. And uh, thank you for those that are a part of this church and uh, are able to help other people. And for those that are in times of need right now, I pray that they would make that need known and we'd be able to speak uh, truth to them and, and help in tangible ways where that's necessary. And, and I pray for those that are uh, maybe trying to figure out if this is the church for them, that you'd, you'd reveal that to them even today. Something that would get said, maybe I wouldn't even realize was being said, that would trigger that this is or is not the place and that you'd get them plugged in with the body of believers. For those who don't know your son, Jesus, as Savior, I pray that you would speak words of life to them and that today would transform their eternity. I pray that none of us would be able to come here and then leave and be the same. I pray we'd all be like the soil we saw last week, that the seed's planted and it produces a crop 30, 60, 100 times. God, I pray that you do that with your word in our hearts today, that you would allow us not to go through religious motions, but that you would have something that said, just take root in our hearts, and then you'd multiply our impact 30, 60, 100 times what is said this morning through this message. God, help us to walk by faith with you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I was thinking this week about various mysteries, and there are a lot of things in life that are unsolved. There's crimes that are unsolved, uh, some crimes that you might look out and think it's obvious even though they haven't come to a verdict, the O.J. Simpson trial. What if it's a different outcome than you think? Wouldn't that be something? You're like, this dude's crazy. What if there's uh, some stuff out there that you think you know, maybe you don't know, and there's some things that other people do know that you don't know, and there's some famous mysteries that are out there, like Bigfoot, the Bermuda Triangle, the Loch Ness Monster. Think about the Bermuda Triangle. It's this area in the northern Atlantic Ocean where around 1950s, boats and, and uh, planes started disappearing, and no one knew why. They gave different explanations, sometimes the weather, but there's that kind of weather in other places. Maybe it's aliens, some people said. I'm going to say when aliens comes in to the conversation, it's probably we don't know would be the answer. It's a mystery. There are lots of mysteries that are out there. In fact, the, the scripture even talks about mystery continually. You see in the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's one proverb that I enjoy. It's a proverb chapter 30, verse 18 and 19. The, the author says this, there are three things that are too amazing for me, four that I don't understand. <laughs> but the fourth one's apparently not too amazing for him. So we'll read what they are. Verse 19, the way of an eagle in the sky. Okay, I can see contemplating that. The way of a snake on a rock. I would never think about that. If I see a snake on a rock, I'm thinking about leaving. I'm not thinking, oh, it's interesting how you're climbing around there. The way of a snake on a rock, the way of a ship on the high seas, the way of a man with a maiden. So I wonder, is that fourth one the one that's not amazing to you, but you just don't understand it? <laughs> I don't know. But there are some things he's even admitting. As an author of part of the Bible, he doesn't understand some stuff. And so we don't understand some stuff. And I think about it in my own life, practical stuff that other people know answers to that I just don't understand. Like, for instance, I have an alarm clock that sets itself. I'm not a gadget guy. I didn't buy this at like Brookstone, some airport place, or you know, some Sky Mall magazine. I didn't buy it from there. I bought it at Walmart for like $10. And it boggles my mind that I can unplug this clock, plug it back in, and it goes right to the right time. It can be that we can lose power, it'll come back on. Do you know when I get nervous? I get nervous at daylight savings time, and I have to preach the next day. <laughs> Is it going to work? And it always does. It's a mystery to me how that clock works. It's a mystery to me how the key fob works on my car. Have you ever seen, you know, most of you probably have these where you can unlock your key, your car from your key or from a little key fob. And I've got this, I push it, and I think to myself, how come every Toyota doesn't unlock when I push this button? How, how does it know? How are you communicating with that car? Is there some weird, like, movie thing happening here? And then two of the doors on my car stopped working that way. And I don't understand how it worked. My friend Jed understands how it works. He said, oh, yeah, you can fix that for, like, 50 cents. I went to the car dealership. They had a different verdict. <laughs> Like $500 a door for them to fix this thing. I don't know how it works, so I don't know. I'm not paying $500 a door. I know that. So when I push my button, two doors unlock. Two doors do not unlock on my car. And I have no idea how it works. It's a mystery to me. 
was at the hardware store the other day with one of my kids and trying to remember what it was like to be a kid and like ordinary stuff can boggle your mind. And we're standing at the hardware store and there's a rack of keys. Like, at the, you know how they oftentimes just have keys there? And she looks up and she says, oh no, dad, what if a bad guy buys a key to somebody's house? And I started laughing. I said, those aren't keys to somebody's house. Those are like generic keys. And I thought, I don't really know how keys work, but I know that my key works. Ironically, later in the week, I had a friend send me this little gif, this little movie clip. See how this works? Ever seen that? I still don't understand it. <laughs> but I know that it works. It's a mystery to me. There are lots of things in life that are a mystery. And you can probably think of some. And think about those of you who are followers of Jesus. Some of you have read the Bible some. Do you ever come across verses and you think, how does that really work? Like God humbles the proud but gives grace to the humble. And so he takes people that are proud and he humbles them, takes power away from them. And then he takes people that are humble and gives them power. How does that actually work? Or why is it that in order to save your life, you have to lose your life? How does, that's like a riddle. Like, how does that work? What do you mean I have to deny myself, take on my cross daily, and follow you? How does that work? Why is it that you're made known through my weaknesses? How is the cross the answer to foolishness? Why is it that you confound the wise with foolish things? Like, well, these things, they, they don't make sense, but just not even Bible verses. Think about church life and people you've met and different Christians that you've come into contact with and just practically how this happens. Have you ever wondered how come, it, how come God uses some people in such significant ways and then it seems like then there's the rest of us? Ever met those people? And it's like when they pray, stuff happens. And they've got these stories of God's provision, of heal, people being healed. And they pray and then some things change. Or they've got stories of sharing Christ and it's like all these people that have come to know Jesus or they've spoken truth into somebody's marriage and the marriage gets changed and, and you think, does God love them more? Or do they love God more? And it can be a mystery how this actually works. In our passage today, what Jesus does, it's like he pulls the curtain back on the mystery and he shows us the mystery of these high-impact Christians. These Christians that it seems like they have 30, 60, 100 times the impact of what a lot of us have. And so we're going to look at it today in Mark chapter 4 in these three parables that Megan already read to us. In Mark chapter 4, verses 21 through 34, and uh, some of you are studying along with us as we go through the book of Mark, and I want to point you to one of the books that was really Im impactful to me this week as I was working on this message was a commentary by a guy named John MacArthur. And what he helped me see was how these three parables actually connect to the parable we just looked at last week. And maybe you remember in Mark chapter 4 and verse 13, last week we looked at verses 1 through 20. In verse 13, uh, Jesus said, if you don't get this parable, how are you going to understand any of the parables? And so last week's parable was a key to unlocking all the other parables that Jesus shares. And what did Jesus say in last week's parable? Do you remember? There were four different types of soils that represented four different types of hearts. Matthew tells us that in Matthew chapter 13. Each one of these soils is a kind of heart. The first three were bad. They're not even Christian, just so you know. The first one is the hardened heart that's indifferent to the gospel. They hear the gospel and it's like they're listening to a flight attendant in the safety briefing. There's like no impact whatsoever. And then Satan comes and he takes the word away. Because when God's at work, Satan's also at work. And then the second heart is the shallow heart. Remember what the shallow heart, they get excited. They're very zealous for God. The emotions of it all gets them pumped up and they're ready to charge the mountain for God. But when, not if, when difficulty comes, they're gone. And then the third heart was the heart that thinks that they can pursue both God and money, thinks that they can pursue both temporal things and eternal things. And Jesus says they're deceived and they don't produce any fruit either. But then there's the fourth soil, and the fourth soil was the good soil. Remember, they hear the word. They receive the word, and it produces 30, 60, 100 times what was sown into them. That was the verse right before these parables. 
And what these parables now show us, there's three different parables that teach us three different truths. And what the parables teach us, the truths they teach us are about what does it look like to be that good soil? What does it look like to be what we're calling today a high-impact Christian, the kind of Christian that it's like 30, 60, 100 times more than what you see in the average? What does it look like to be that Christian? It's not really a mystery. Jesus shares the first part of it in this first parable, verses 21 through 25. Look at it in Mark chapter 4, verse 21. He, Jesus, said to them, do you bring in a lamp and put it under a bowl or a bed? This is actually a ridiculous analogy. Like, this is a candle, by the way. You're going to stick a candle underneath your bed, like, and catch the whole place on fire? No, you're not going to do that. For whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed, and whatever is concealed is meant to be brought out into the open. Verse 23, if anyone has ears to hear, let them hear. Verse 24, consider carefully what you hear. He continued, with the measure you use, it will be measured to you and even more. Whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what little he has will be taken from him. The parable is about generosity. The measure you use, you've heard before, you reap what you sow. The measure you use when you're doing business deals and you can measure and you can try and cheat and, and really scrimp on how much grain you give to someone in a basket, they buy these baskets full, or you can be generous and heap a bunch in there. And with the measure you use, it'll be measured back to you. And it's talking about what God gives back to you. And did you see there that says, not only the measure you use will be measured back to you, but even more because God's a generous God. What he's talking about is eternal rewards. It's the way that you're generous with what he's talking about being generous in this passage, we'll talk about in just a minute. It's not money. Then it's going to be given back to you in eternity plus some based on the way that you are generous here. And so think about that for just a moment. Many people in life will work really hard towards retirement. And you work really hard 30, 40 years maybe in your job so that sometimes five, but 10, 20, 15 years, somewhere in that range, you'd be able to live the high life based on what you earned before. And they work for 30, 40 years for that. How dumb do you have to be to know that the scripture teaches us that we're going to get an eternal reward? I'm talking just to Christians, by the way. See, everybody lives forever. Some people live in hell. Some people live in heaven based on whether you have a relationship with Jesus. If you have a relationship with Jesus, that's the only people I'm talking to right now. You're going to get eternal rewards. Now, let me tell you this. Even if you, just, even if you trust Christ on your deathbed, you never did anything to live for Jesus, it's going to be way better than the other alternative. Amen. And it's going to be an awesome experience, but it's not going to be the same experience for every person. There are privileges, there are benefits, there are rewards that are going to be given to some that aren't going to be given to others. And how you live here for 70 or 80 years will impact, not 10, 20, impact eternity like forever. How dumb do you have to be to not invest for eternity if you know that God tells us in his word repeatedly in multiple books, multiple times, that you what you do, store up treasures in heaven, what you do here impacts there. And so here he's talking about being generous. What's he talking about being generous with? It's not money. It's not time. It's not talent. It's what the high impact Christian knows. The high impact Christian knows they must be generous with Jesus. It's not being generous to Jesus, giving Jesus your money. It's not being generous to Jesus, giving Jesus your time. It's not being generous to Jesus, giving Jesus your talents. That's talked about in other places. In this passage of Scripture, it's talking about being generous with Jesus, giving Jesus to other people. It's about sharing the gospel. And how do I know that it's Jesus that we're talking about being generous with? Well, you've got to go back up to the first verse. The first verse is verse 21. So now, verses 24 and 25 talk about being generous. Verse 21 talks about what you're being generous with, as Jesus gives this analogy of the lamp. And he talks about what you do with a lamp. Now, this is a hard verse to translate in Greek because there's a word in it that you'll see at the verses up on the screen. They don't really translate well. The Greek word is does come. 
not as being brought, it's bringing, it does come. Well, how does that, how does a lamp come? How does a lamp, because the lamp is a person. It's not just a generic lamp, the way that it's translated here. In fact, in the Greek text, the word for lamp right before it, just preceding that word, is not the indefinite article, a lamp, it's the definite article, the lamp. Like the Ohio State University. Amen? It's a couple here. I know they're here. The you. Got any Miami people? Got one. All right. It's not just any university. I'm talking about a specific university. Jesus isn't just talking about any old lamp. He's talking about the lamp. Who's the lamp? Well, you go through the scripture, Jesus continually talking about himself as light. Just go through the Gospel of John. I'll read you some verses from John. John chapter 12, verse 46. I have come, talking about himself, into the world as a light, so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. John chapter 1, verse 4. In him was life, talking about Jesus, and that life was the light of men. John 1, 9. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. It's talking about Jesus. John chapter 8, and verse 12. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 15 through 16, the Apostle Paul is speaking. He's talking about God. I love this description of light. He says this, God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. There's only one, verse 16, who alone is immortal, unlike any of us, and who lives in unapproachable light. I got some bright lights on my face right now. I'll adjust. Have you ever woken up in the middle of the night like some of your kids come in and flip the lights on or a roommate came in and flipped the lights on on you and you're like, wow, what in the world? But you adjust. Or you go outside in the spring. It's going to be so bright out here some days in the spring and the clouds will even be so white you can't look at them. And, but you adjust. You don't adjust to this light. It's unapproachable light. It's light that you can't bear to be in the presence of. That's who Jesus was. And it's almost as if as he walked the earth in his earthly ministry, his humanity veiled some of his glory. But there's one instance that we see in the Gospels where he let that shine through. He was on a mountain with some of his disciples, and his disciples described it. In Matthew chapter 17, so there, was a, there he was, transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, using the best words they can possibly use as humans who've only seen so many experiences. And his clothes became as white as, I don't know what word to use, the light? See, Jesus is the light. He is, in our passage, the lamp that does come into the earth. And what's the purpose of a lamp? The purpose of a lamp is not to be hidden. The parable in verse 21 is actually a ridiculous parable. And anyone who heard it would know it. It's such a common everyday thing. They, now, they remember, they didn't have lighting like we do. They don't just flip switches and lights come on around their house. They didn't have lights that you can walk by them and they turn on motion lights. They didn't have LED lights that are energy efficient but have 3,000 lumens. They didn't have that. They had a little bowl and have some oil in it. And you'd have a, a floating uh, thing that you'd put on there, and then you'd put the wick in that, and then it would burn based on the oil that was there. It was like a candle. And when it was dark out, it was dark. And so you don't light it and then put it under a basket. You don't light it and then put it underneath your bed unless you're trying to burn the place down. You light it, and you put it on a stand. That's the purpose. The purpose of light is to reveal, not conceal. And so you put it in a place where it can have the greatest effect, where it can have the greatest fulfillment of its purpose. And do you know what? That's what Jesus does with you. Because Jesus was the light of the world. He came into the world. And when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, he puts that light in you. In 1 Peter, he says it like this. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. That's who you are as a believer in Jesus, by the way. 
a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him, be generous with Jesus, declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 5, it says, and you can look that up on your own, we are children of the light. The verse that we oftentimes use is the vision of our church, Matthew chapter 5. talks about us being the light. You know what's just happened? Jesus is preaching the Sermon on the Mount. He's just said in verse 12 that the, the people killed the prophets. Those are the good deeds. That's what they did. That's what it is to do good deeds that shine light, that people would see our Father in heaven. It's to act like the prophets and be generous with Jesus, to tell the truth and shine light into darkness. Jesus says it like this, you're the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Uses the same analogy. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house, fulfills its purpose. In the same way, let your light shine before men, the light that he's placed in you. When he called you out of darkness, he, he indwells you. His spirit is within you. The gospel's been planted in you. Shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father who's in heaven. That doesn't mean just being a nice guy. That doesn't mean just being moral. It doesn't mean grabbing the garbage can from your neighbor's house and pulling up to his garage. That means verbally sharing Jesus with people. That's being generous with Jesus because God's light's been placed in you. And so what he does, it's the same thing you do with a lamp. You put it in a spot. He puts you in a dark place. How foolish, how ridiculous would it be to be then hide that light? Have you ever been in a really dark place? Like a real, not just spiritually dark, like physically dark place. I was thinking about it this week. I remember one time I was caving in West Virginia. Do not ask me why I decided to do this. I don't know. I can't even come up with that answer when I think back on it. But I was climbing through a cave, wet, dark place, the group of people in West Virginia, and uh, we're going through. We had a guide that was taking us through. We had been through this cave before. Some of the spots were real tight. Some of them were open. The whole thing was dark. We had these little lights on top of our helmets that we were wearing. And we got to one spot where it was open. You could hear some water running and uh, running like there's a faucet, but whatever. You get the idea. The water's flowing through there. And uh, the guide said, uh, let's all turn our lights off. We turned our lights off. Literally, I could not see my hand before my face. Like I moved my face right there without touching my face. You wouldn't know it was there. It was so dark. So you know what a little bit of light does in that dark spot? If just one of the people in our group had turned their light on? Do you realize how dark this world is? Do you realize what's going on? Did you watch the news? I mean, do you talk to people what's happening in life? Do you think, do you reflect on what's happening in your own life? We talked about, we battle, not against, not against flesh and blood. It's angels and principalities, the rulers of this dark world. You know who's the, the power of the air? His name's Satan. This is a dark place. And so what's God's plan? Take these jars of clay, us, with a message in us, and place us in the spot where we can fulfill our purpose the greatest. And he's uniquely and specifically made you for your life with your neighbors and family members and co-workers. And he's put you in that place. How ridiculous to not let that light shine. How ridiculous to not be generous with the truth. But do you hear the opportunities when they come? Did you notice in this passage, all through last week, this week, the repeated refrain, it's redundant to say, here, listen, when Jesus started speaking last week in uh, Mark chapter 4 and verse 3, the very first word of the parable is, listen. And then in verse 9 he says, those who have ears to hear, hear. And then he goes through it. He continues to say the word hear. And then did you see in our, our passage today, in verse 23, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Verse 24, in case you didn't get it. Consider carefully what you hear. Are you listening? And then last week, remember verse 20, which is what we're talking about. Verse 20, the good soil. What's the key to the good soil? They hear the word. They receive it. Then they go out and they do it. So if God spoke to you in the place that he's placed you, would you even hear him? That's a question each one of us has to answer. 
I met uh, a, a lady about a month ago. It was in March. I was in Louisville, Kentucky, and uh, she was what you'd just consider a normal church-going Christian, uh, not this like superstar, like, oh, wow, all these things happen in your life, and she was working a corporate job, married to a husband, godly couple, got a local church they go to, love Jesus. On her way to work, every day she would drive by this triple uh, X theater, adult entertainment place, whatever, strip club, whatever you want to call it, part of the sex industry. This young lady has not ever been part of the sex industry. She actually grew up as a pastor's kid, wasn't part of her story, but she started praying for the people that would go there and the people that worked there as she drove by. She said one day, she's driving, she's living in southern Indiana, she's driving by this, this place right at the border, the Kentucky border, and uh, she's praying, and she said, God said to my heart, you need to go demonstrate my love to the ladies that are trapped in that place. She didn't know what that meant. But she was listening. Would you hear if God said, take my light into a dark place? Would you even, would you even know? So she impresses, God impresses this on her heart. She's, you know, haven't had that type of experience lots of times. She didn't know what to do, and so she started figuring, you know, if my husband's going to tell me I'm crazy, so she calls her husband, Josh. She says, Josh, you know, God wants me to take the gospel. She, he's like, awesome, let's do it. What do we do? And she's like, oh, man, now I have to do it, because now I, like, told somebody about it. And she started praying about it, and then she told a couple of her friends, and her and three of her friends started going out every Thursday night and just parking in the parking lot of this strip club, and praying for the people that would go in, praying for the girls that were in there. They did this for over a year, just praying. One night, they're there. It's her and two of her friends are there that night. And they're praying, and she feels God impressed upon her heart. You need to go inside today. Doesn't know why, doesn't know what she's going to do. Just knows that she's supposed to share the kindness of Jesus in there. So she goes inside. Isn't that just like God, by the way? Like his word, he says his word's a lamp to our feet. He just gives us enough to tell us the next step. And she's listening, and as she's listening to those, you know, if you hear, you keep going, he's going to keep being faithful and giving you more. And she takes the step. She goes inside. She sits at the bar. She said, the bartender came up and said, okay, ladies, why are you here? Because you're obviously not interested in the girls. You don't seem like you're looking for a job. Like, what are you doing here? And they said, well, we're Christians. And uh, we think Jesus told us to come here, and we're supposed to show kindness. And then she just said, she said do you think that the owner would let us make a meal for these women, like a home-cooked meal uh, one night? And the bartender said, no way. Like, he's not letting that happen. And then she looked around the place and wasn't told who the owner was, but it was sensed that the Lord told her who the owner was and walked up to a guy and said, are you the owner? He said, yes, I am. Why? And she said, because I'm a Christian, and uh, I believe that God wants me to come here and show kindness to these women. Could we make them a meal one night? And he said, Christians never come here except to tell us that we're going to hell. And he was so blown away by her kindness, because kindness leads to repentance, right? And he's so blown away by her kindness that he let her start bringing meals with her friends and then women started coming to Christ because then they started sharing the truth, the light of the gospel. And you can read about their ministry. It's called Scarlet's Hope. It's in Louisville, Kentucky. And they now minister to over 20 different clubs every Thursday night and serve meals to 300, over 300 women. It's more than just four ladies now. There's volunteers, there's interns, there's staff members. When she was telling me the story, we were sitting in the living room of a halfway house that they've purchased for women that are coming out of the sex industry, that are trying to they usually have like abusive boyfriends or people they need to get away from, all kinds of stuff like that to help them transition. They start working at a bakery they've started. They've actually started a business called uh, Scarlet's Bakery that's in Louisville. If you're ever there, you should go there, patronize them, give them more than what they even asked for. Because they're not there to make money. They're there to help these women see and then be the light of Jesus Christ to others. She's just a regular lady. Goes to church. God starts speaking to her heart. She starts obeying. What about you? What does God want you to do in your workplace? What does he want you to do in your home? What does he want you to do in your neighborhood? How silly would it be for you to have the light of Jesus Christ? Think about what he's done for us. 
and then to hide it. See, the thing is you have to actually tell it. It's not just about being. We got this myth in our mind as Christians, and I think what happens is some people didn't like different styles of evangelism, and so they came up with what they call lifestyle evangelism, and then people have taken that to mean you just live such a good life that people are going to just know that you love Jesus. Like you're going to go and mow your neighbor's lawn, and he's going to come out and fall on his knees and be like, Jesus is my Lord. That's ridiculous, just so you know. That doesn't happen. That's not how it works. That's not what this verse means in Matthew chapter 5. Let your light shine before men. That's not what some people misquote St. Francis of Assisi. Uh, share the gospel, and if necessary, use words. It's always necessary to use the words to share the gospel. You have to verbally proclaim, here's what the gospel is. It starts with bad news. It's actually really good news, but people have to understand the bad news. You're a sinner, and you're on your way to hell. But Jesus Christ, even while you were sinning against him, died for you on the cross. Not only did he die on a cross, but he rose from the dead, so now he offers you with victory over death, life. He's the only one that can do it. He says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except for through me. Not by thinking good thoughts, not by being moral, not by being religious. You've got to have a relationship with me. Trust me. And those who trust him get eternal life. It's a mystery how sinners are forgiven. But that's what he does. And that's the good news. You have to verbally state the good news. They don't know unless... They hear, in fact, the Bible tells us you have to verbally state it, Romans chapter 10 and verse 17. Consequently, faith comes from hearing. There's that word again. It's all through the Bible. Are you listening? Hearing the message, and the message is heard through the spoken word of Christ. And then where does he put it? He puts it in the believers who trusted him. He puts his light in them. You are children of the light. Now, be generous with Jesus. That's the point of this. And he'll be generous with you, the eternal rewards, and even more than what you've sown. Impact Christians know they have to be generous with Jesus. Not only do they know that, they also know that they're helpless without Jesus. That's what the next parable teaches us, that they're helpless without Jesus. Look at the next parable. It's Jesus speaking again. It says, he also said, this is what the kingdom of God is like. The kingdom of God is the rule and the reign of God. This is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed. And so now he's going back to the analogy we saw last week in verses 1 through 20. A man scatters seed. It's an agricultural analogy. On the ground. Night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he doesn't know how. It's a mystery to him. He doesn't even know how it works. He's a farmer all by itself. The soil produces grain. First the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel, and he goes through this whole process in the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it because the harvest has come. And so here he goes back to this analogy we were talking about last week, this agricultural analogy of a farmer, only this time the point is not the soil, this time the point is the seed. And the point is, there's innate power within the seed. Remember what the seed is, the word of God. What do we know about the word of God? Romans chapter 1, verse 16, for it is the power of God unto salvation. So God's word has power in and of itself. What does that mean for the farmer? It doesn't depend on the farmer. What does the farmer do? The farmer goes out and he sows seed. What does that mean? That means you're going out and you're telling people, you're being generous with Jesus, you're telling people the gospel, but it's not your job to make that seed grow. Which means, one, you're helpless, but two, it means it doesn't depend upon you. So that can be both encouraging and challenging. It's encouraging because think about these disciples. There's 12 of them. One of them's going to betray Jesus. There's only going to be 11 left, and he's going to tell them, tell the nations. <laughs> yeah, do you know who we are, Jesus? <laughs> we weren't the sharpest tools in the shed when you called us. We don't have degrees. We don't have education. Some of us were fishermen. Some of us were tax collectors. Some of us are zealots. There's a reason we were available to come to you. We weren't the teachers of the law and the scribes and those who have all the influence. 
And Jesus says, don't worry, it doesn't depend upon you. What pressure should that, that should take so much pressure off of us. But you know why it's also challenging? Because some of the people that we want to come to Jesus, we love so much. We wish there was just a way we, if I could just say it the right way, if I could just say it at the right time. Maybe I said it too confrontationally. Maybe I wasn't confrontational enough. Maybe I was, maybe it was bad timing. Maybe they were having a bad day. Maybe I need to, and we think it depends upon us. And so what do we do is we try to help God out. As if we just said the right thing at the right time, the right moment. If we just, and we think it depends upon us, but you know what impact Christians realize? What does it say here that the farmer does? He plants the seed, then what does he do? He goes to sleep. He doesn't even know how it works. Even if he had a, a PhD in DNA process, he wouldn't understand. Why does this seed work and that seed doesn't work? What did we see last week? Three of the four soils don't produce anything. How come? The farmer's just throwing seed everywhere. He doesn't know how this is going to happen. So the same with us with sharing the gospel. You don't know who's going to respond. You know how they're going to respond. You just tell everybody and then go to sleep. God's got this. Think about if the farmer tries to help the seed out. What's going to happen? He's going to go dig the seed back up out of the ground. Oh, precious little seed. He's going to smother it like my kids do with their stuffed animals. Elmira style. Oh, I want to hug you and squeeze you. I have my very own. He's going to kill it. What if he looks at the seed and he says, well, if I just cracked it open, maybe I'd help it get out of there a little bit. He's going to kill it. What if he leaves it in the ground long enough that it starts to sprout, but he's not patient enough to let it start growing, so he starts pulling on it. He's going to pull it out of the ground. He's going to kill it. Every situation, the farmer starts doing what's not his job. He causes a mess. There's a temptation for us with the gospel, right? I want you to get it. I want you to respond. So what do I do? Then I try to put it in my own power. I'm gonna, if I just said it the right way, and so what do we do? We share it in different ways. We start to take parts off. Maybe we share, like, the pro- have you heard of the prosperity gospel? If you trust Jesus, all your problems will go away, and you're going to get money, and you're not going to have any health problems, and just trust Jesus, and then we all still die, but just don't talk about that part. And even though Jesus promises there'll be trouble if you tr- is because you've trusted him. But then they, they come with this message. Why? Because you preach it to Americans. Americans want to be rich. They want to be healthy. Do you know what happens? What ends up happening is those who do respond, they're like the second soil last week, the shallow soil, they get excited about it. Oh, you're going to take care of all my problems? You're going to do all this stuff for me? That's awesome. And then when difficulty, not if, when difficulty comes, they're gone. It's a false convert. Or there's some people, maybe it's people that you know and you love. They're like the hard soil. They're not interested. They're not interested in the gospel. They're not interested in spiritual stuff. And so then what do you do? You try to entertain them with the gospel. And so we try to entertain people. And you know what happens? As soon as the entertainment's gone, they're gone because they're not there for Jesus. There's some people, they're, they're like the soil that has, they love money and they love the temporal things and they also want to love God. They're like the rich young ruler. They're like the soil that we talked about last week. And Jesus says, you can't have two masters. And so what we do is we try to compromise the message. Maybe we don't talk about sin. We just talk about the benefits, forgiveness. Forgiveness from what? Or we, we don't talk about counting the cost. So then they think they get deceived, it says last week. And what we oftentimes do when we try to help God out with the part that's not our part is we cause more of a mess than anything. And if we think that it's on us, we are incredibly arrogant. We are helpless. Like the farmer, tell the truth and then let God do what he does because God's the only one that does the work. And you can't even see most of the work that's happening beneath the soil. And so how do you know? How do you know if they're a hard heart? How do you know if they're a shallow heart? How do you know if they're good soil? You don't. Let God do the work. I was reading this week about different people coming to Christ. Uh, Christianity Today had an article. It was 10 different testimonies, and some of them were famous, some of them weren't famous. One lady that I read about uh, is kind of well-known. She's a, a political analyst. She's a Democratic voice, uh, liberal views on Fox News. Called Christ- Her name's Kristen Powers. 
and uh, she talks about how she grew up nominally religious, Episcopalian. Uh, she thought her dad was a man of faith until she grew to the point where they could start having real conversations. She realized he didn't really believe a lot of that stuff either. And so she thought, well, he doesn't believe it. And she's got way more doubts than him because her faith was kind of in him growing up. And by the time she got to college, she, was, she, kept, she said she shifted between agnostic and atheist. And so it's like, well, there's nothing out there and nothing can be known to God definitely doesn't exist. And she'd go back and forth between those two things and ended up graduating and going into new stuff. And the most famous place that she's known for is just a Fox News contributor. And there's multiple media outlets that she's part of. You can read the testimony on Christianity Today. And she talks about how uh, she had told one of her friends about a month before she met this one guy that she's open to dating lots of different people. They just can't be religious. She meets this guy. He's into Jesus. And she thinks, that's just a weird thing. Like, we can overcome that. Like, that's just, a, he goes to church on Sunday. And that's the deal. And so about a month into their dating, I think it was, he sat down with her and said, hey, I don't, I'm not really into playing games here. And Jesus is really important to me. I, I want to get married. I can't marry somebody who doesn't know Jesus. Do you know Jesus is your Savior? She said, no. And he said, uh, do you think you could ever trust Jesus as your Savior? And she said, I didn't want to mislead the guy. And I knew I would never trust Jesus as my Savior. So I said, no, I, I could never trust Jesus as my Savior. And then she said, and I love this statement. I'm going to use this on my liberal friends. She said, he said the words that are magic words to any liberal. He said, could you just keep an open mind about trusting Jesus? And in reality, she didn't have an open mind about it, but she had to answer because she's liberal. She said, yes, I have to keep an open mind. I have to keep an open mind about everything, right? And she said, but she didn't have a very high view of Christians because working in the media, she said, usually when I come across Christians, they were saying something about gays or they're saying something about feminists. And they had different views than her. And so she didn't think they were very smart. And she didn't believe this religious stuff. It was mostly made up as like a crutch. So he says, she said, she's open. He says, will you come to church with me? She said she'd go to church, Presbyterian church in New York. She didn't realize that many Presbyterians are evangelical. She expected high church, like the Episcopalian church, you know, incense and all this, stand up, sit down, you've got to figure out all the liturgy. And she said, we went there, and there was a band playing, and there's stuff up on the screen, and I, she said, I hated it. I thought it was terrible. So then this guy gets up to speak, Tim Keller, some of you have heard of him before. And she said, and he starts speaking, and it's like a college lecture. He's talking about art, and he's talking about history, and apparently the way that Keller preaches, I've not heard him preach, but he ties everything together with Jesus at the end, and he's written the book, The Reason for God. And a lot of what he's doing is he's building this case about how there's no, no, intellectual, there's no intellectualism behind agnosticism or atheism. It doesn't make sense. And she said, I'd listen to these talks, and I thought that it was a great lecture, and then he'd mess it up with Jesus at the end. She said, I went for about eight months. Honestly felt no closer to God. But I really like the talks, except for the Jesus part that he'd throw in. And she said, I realized that atheism and agnosticism wasn't true, but I wasn't buying into the Christianity thing. And when I heard people talk about having an encounter with God, hearing from God, she said, I thought they were either weird or they were lying. And one night, she said, I had a dream, and Jesus came to me and said, here I am. She said, I didn't know what to do. I woke up, I called my boyfriend, I, said, I wanted to tell him about this dream, and before I could tell him about the dream, he said, I was praying last night, and God told me I need to break up with you. He broke up with her. He didn't see God working. And uh, she didn't know what to do, so she went to a guy that she met through her boyfriend, Eric Metaxas. Some of you know him. He wrote a Bonhoeffer book recently and some other books that he's popular for written. And said, hey, I had this dream, and now everywhere I go in New York City, I feel like I'm sensing God's presence. What do I do? And Eric said to her, you need to go to Bible study. Why don't you go to Tim Keller's wife's Bible study? And she said, only weirdos and zealots go to Bible study. I'm not going to Bible study. 
She went to Bible study. She went to that first Bible study. She said, I don't even remember all the stuff that was said, but when I left, I thought, it's true. The gospel's true. She trusted Christ as her Savior. But who would have known for those months? Who would have known what God, she didn't even know what God was doing in her life. Some of you think about when you came to Christ. Somebody tells you the truth. The seeds, it's not on them. God has to do a work. God's the only one that can change a heart. That should be encouraging. It is hard and challenging for us, especially those of us who like to be in control, especially those of us, if I just did it and it was on me, but do you know how arrogant that is? See, impact Christians realize they are generous with Jesus and they're helpless without Jesus, but they can be courageous because of Jesus. That's what the third parable teaches us. We can be courageous because of Jesus. Jesus tells another parable. It's one of many, by the way, that he tells that is teaching the same point. He says, again, he said, what shall we say the kingdom of God is like? What is the rule and reign of God like? Or what parable shall we use to describe it? It's like, it's kind of like he's like, I don't know, which parable am I going to use right now? It's, it's like a seed, a mustard seed, which is the smallest seed you plant in the ground. Yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants with such big branches that the birds of the air can perch in its shade. Then Mark goes on to tell us in verses 33 and 34 with many similar parables. And so he kept telling this teach the same point. With many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them. We don't write them all down. There's too, he taught so much stuff, we don't write it all down. Then he goes on and he said, uh, as much as they could understand. He did not say anything to them without using a parable, but when he was alone with his own disciples, he explained everything. The mustard seed parable and all the parables that taught the same principle. And so what is Jesus doing here? He's telling a story to teach us what the kingdom of God is like. He said, it's like... A mustard seed. He's not giving a botany lesson here. Jesus knows the mustard seed is not the smallest seed in all of existence. However, proverbially to the Jewish audience, it was oftentimes the thing that was used to talk about the smallest thing in existence. You see Jesus use it elsewhere. So if you had the faith of a mustard seed, you could move mountains. What he's saying is if you just had the small, do you realize I could use the smallest amount of faith in your life? If you just had the smallest amount of faith. Here he's not talking about faith. Here he's giving a contrast between the smallest thing and a big thing. And what he's showing is, listen, you, tr you trust me, I'm the one who does the work, he's just shared that parable. And he says, I can take, you do the smallest, most insignificant thing, and I can do, use it in a big way. And so Mark could have picked a lot of different parables. Why did Mark pick this one? Because think about who he's writing to. Remember in Mark chapter 1, I shared with you that this church is being persecuted. That Nero's killing, sending Christians out in the streets for wild dogs to eat them. You think they feel like they're conquering the world at this point? He's, Jesus, when he shares it, who's he talking to? Twelve guys. He knows one of them's going to betray him. He's going to have 11 guys left, and he's going to tell them, take the gospel to all the nations. You know what he's teaching them? I take insignificant things, I take small stuff, and it has a huge impact. And that's his pattern all throughout the Bible. You can just talk about the disciples, but just think through the Bible. When God created humanity, he did it out of dust. One little speck of dirt takes little stuff. He does big things. Think about when he tells Joshua to beat Jericho, but don't use any weapons. <laughs> if I'm the general, oh, I think I'm good. Somebody else will volunteer for this one. What does he tell Gideon? You got too many men. Get rid of some of those soldiers, because when I win, I want it to be clear that I'm the one that won. What about when David gets selected to fight Goliath? We always jump in, like, there's David and Goliath, and David wins. Do you remember when Samuel goes to Jesse, and God has said, one of Jesse's sons, and Je David's so insignificant that Jesse doesn't even think of bringing David before Samuel. Because then God, he uses David significantly, if you haven't read the Old Testament. He takes insignificant things, and he does big stuff. 
And so then his son is born in a stable, laid in a manger. He's God in the flesh. God takes insignificant beginnings and does significant things. He feeds 5,000 people with a little boy's lunch. He takes 11 dudes that aren't the sharpest guys. And that's why you're sitting here today. You think about what happens with those guys. You think these guys, they, they don't have a clue. They're, sometimes they don't get it. So they're, they're all fleeing when the cross is happening. And then Jesus comes to them. There's 120 believers when Jesus, that's a pretty small church. There's 120 believers when Jesus leaves this earth. Then he appears to 500 with 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Then in Acts chapter 2, just in one church, the first church gets started. Peter preaches, 3,000 come to Christ. So there's 3,600 believers. And they must have been Baptist because they kept counting everything. Because you start reading through Acts and you see how this thing grows. It says in Acts 4.4, 4, but many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. Many scholars believe when you counted the women and the children, there were about 10,000 at that point in the church in Jerusalem, just one church. Acts 5.14, nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. And so now there's starting to be so many. Stop moving. Like, we can't count all of you. Acts chapter 6 and verse 1, in those days when the number of disciples was increasing, Acts chapter 6 and verse 7, so the word of God spread, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. And a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. And so now you've got people that are even converting from, they're in the priesthood, they're converting from that and to Christianity. There's so many people coming. That's just in the church in Jerusalem. Then you read the book of Acts. And what was Acts said? You are my witnesses where? In Judea, Jerusalem? To Samaria? You haven't gone there yet. So what God does is he sends persecution on the church. Difficulty does come. So the word starts to spread. And what do you say to the uttermost parts of the world? To them, the uttermost parts of the world at that point was Rome. And you read through the book of Acts. And you go to these cities. And every city they go to, people are coming to Christ. More and more people are being added to the number. You start up these 11 guys. More and more people are getting added to the number. And eventually the gospel goes to Rome. But the book of Acts ends. We did this book study on the book of Acts. And it's an open ending. The story's not over with. Because you're still the story. The disciples had never even heard of America. And the gospel got to you. Because what God does is he takes insignificant things, small things. And he does big stuff. It's continually true. It's how the gospel got to you. I think about my own story, how I came to Christ. I came to Christ, a guy in 1959. Some of you are looking at me going, how old is this dude? 1959, a guy in uh, Flint, Michigan, stuck a gospel track. It's a little book that explains that we are sinners, that Jesus died for our sin, that he is the only way, the truth, and the life, that no one comes to the Father but through him. And he stuck it in a little toilet paper roll in a factory in General Motors in Flint, Michigan. Another guy came walking into that bathroom. His name was Lazarus Thomas. Picked up that gospel track, read it, stuck it in his back pocket. For the next two weeks, kept reading the gospel. Placed his faith in Jesus. God changed his life. His 11-year-old son named Mike Thomas saw that his dad committed his life to God. And it changed his dad, and he thought he was a better dad. So he placed his faith in God. Mike grows up, becomes an attorney in the area, starts a Bible study at my public high school. And in 1995, shares the gospel with me, tells me that I'm a sinner, that I'm on my way to hell. But he's being generous with Jesus, trusting God to do the work. And I place my faith in Christ. I've never met the guy who stuck that gospel track in that toilet paper roll in 1959. When I get to heaven, I'm going to go up to him and tell him thank you. He's not going to have any clue who I am. God takes insignificant things. He does significant stuff. You know, when I was a college student, I worked at General Motors in Flint. And guess what I did in the bathroom stalls when I go on my break? 
stuck little booklets in there. I hope somebody comes up to me someday and says, hey, I trusted Christ because you placed that little gospel track in a bathroom stall, and I'm going to be like, let me introduce you to my friend from 1959. Because then anybody I lead to Christ is because of what he did. And so about you, it started with these dudes, and it comes to you. And, and do you know what God tells us ends up happening? In Revelation chapter 7, he tells us that all the nations do here. It hasn't happened yet. There are lots of tribes. There are lots of tongues. There are lots of people that have not even heard about Jesus Christ. There are people you work with that don't even know the gospel. But in Revelation chapter 7, it says this, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one, not even the Baptists, could count. From every nation, in any way you want to describe people, in case you want to classify them different ways thousands of years later when you start to interpret this passage, every nation, every tribe, every people, every language, if you want to do it geographically, if you want to do it by ethnicity, if you want to do it by the way they speak, all of the, there's at least one representative from all of them standing before the throne in front of the Lamb, and they were wearing white robes, and they were holding palm branches in their hands like on Palm Sunday. And then what does it say? And they cried out in a loud voice, singular one loud voice. Can you imagine what this sounded like? Salvation. Like all the voices, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and under the Lamb. Every nation. And then you think about the significant differences you'll see when Jesus came riding on that Lamb on Palm Sunday, when he came on in a donkey. But you know when he comes back, he's on a violent horse. When he died, he shed his blood for our sins. When he comes back, his blood, his read Revelation, his robe is soaked in blood. It's not his, it's his enemies that he slaughters. He starts with insignificant things. There's a significant work, and he wants to do the work through you. That's what he's telling his disciples. It's a mustard seed. It's a plant of mustard. You plant, you just share the truth. I'll do the work, and it's going to be a significant work, and you don't have to worry about it. Just be courageous and trust that I'm going to do the work. One of the guys that went to our church, I was talking with one of our elders who goes to Madagascar regularly. One of our missionaries has planted a bunch of churches in Madagascar, 10 different churches at least there. There might be 14. They're raising up different leaders to, to pastor those churches with different tribes and different tongues in that place. Do you know what his ministry was when he was here at Southbridge? He was, he was a part of our church, the very beginning of our church. He would put road signs in the ground. He'd pray over those road signs that God would change someone's eternity through that. And God did. And he doesn't know some of those people but now you see him being used to plant churches. And I told the guy who's uploading, our, there's a guy that volunteers to upload our sermons, and you never know who's going to see that. So why don't you pray over that when you upload it, just like Grant did when he would pray over those road signs, that God would use your ministry. That you're uploading this thing, no one sees you, you're sitting on a computer all by yourself, and you put it on there, and you don't know somebody in Africa could hear, somebody in India could hear, you don't know. You have no idea how God wants to use you. I remember the first church that I went to after I trusted Christ independent, fundamental Baptist church, about as conservative as you can imagine, but we decided one week that we were going to do random acts of kindness in our city. And one of the things we were doing, I remember we went on the street corners in August, and we started handing out sodas to people. They pull up to the thing, and you know, you get people that, they're usually taking donations or begging or something, they're standing at a street intersection, and we had signs on that said, no strings attached, and we just hand people a can of Coke, a can of Pepsi, whatever it was, and we walk up, they try to give money, we weren't allowed to take the money, and they think we wanted them to come to church, we weren't trying to get them to come to church, we are just trying to be kind. I remember I was unloading one of the, the coolers. We went back to put new ice in it. And one of the ladies in the office said that someone had just called anonymously, said she was on her way home from work. She was going to take her own life when she got home was her plan. But somebody gave her a can of soda. Saved her life. She said, I'm going to come to church this Sunday. 
I don't know who she was. I don't know if she came to church. I don't know what happened after that point. But I know that God used a can of soda in her life. If God can use a can of soda, he can use you. So some of you may have started this message and thought to yourself, those high-impact Christians, yeah, that, that's not me. You might be the very person that God wants this message to be spoken to. And so the question I have for you is, are you listening? Do you hear? How does God want to use you to take the light into a dark place, whatever dark place he's placed you in, because he's put you at the exact spot he wants you to fulfill the purpose he has for you as he's put his light in you. You are helpless to do anything, but you're called to be generous with what you've been given, which is the light, and you can be courageous with that because he's the one who does the work, and he can use you. And so we're going to conclude today just by asking God to speak to each one of our hearts because the answer is going to be different for everybody. How does he want to use you? You're part of a unique kingdom, the kingdom of God is like. Do you know what your king is like? It's different than any other king. Every major power, go read history. We don't have time to go through all that. Rome, Persia, Mongolians, whoever you're going to pick. You know what they did? They dominated someone else. They killed them. You know what your king did? He died for his enemies, which was you. And he puts his truth in you to then share with others. And that kingdom is going to go to every tribe and every tongue and every nation. And he does the work. But he does it through you if you're good soil. Let's pray. Father, I pray that your truth would be planted in our hearts. I pray that we would each one produce 30, 60, 100, maybe even a thousand times what's been sown in us. Do things through us, even through what seems to be insignificant, telling of the truth, insignificant, acts of kindness, insignificant, seeming to us things that you can use that would bring yourself glory and you'd bring people into your kingdom. God, will you speak to our hearts right now, specifically to believers? Will you speak to our hearts and tell us who do you want us to share the gospel with this week? How do you want us to shine light into darkness? Maybe a coworker, maybe an employee, maybe an employer, maybe a spouse, our kids, student, a friend. God, will you just put it on each one of our hearts? Just like you spoke to Rachel when she was driving down the expressway and she drove past a strip club, will you speak to our hearts and tell us what you want us to do? And God, I pray for each one of my friends that they would then walk by faith and take that step and that you got them in the next step and the next step and that when our lives are done that we will have had an impact beyond what we could have ever imagined and you would reward us greatly. Thank you for being a generous God. I pray if there are any people here that don't know your son Jesus as Savior, that they wouldn't think they could just go be moral or go be nice, that you would plant that word at their hard hearts, break those hearts, at their shallow hearts, God, change those hearts. God, will you just make them desire you more than money, more than this place, have them want you and trust you as Savior in this moment.